0: Hello, this is Jenna Quinn, CEO and founder of Perfecting Peeds. Perfecting Peas is the first of its kind in the United States. We, as pediatric pharmacists, provide what's called comprehensive medication management to all medically complex pediatric patients. Our goal with Pediatrics in Review is to review, analyze, and gain knowledge on the most up-to-date literature so we can service our pediatric patients as best as possible. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Three,
1: two, one. Adverse drug reactions, or ADRs, are a serious issue in healthcare today. The pharmacist is the last line of defense to help prevent ADRs. A rising role of the pharmacist is the specialist who focuses on our children, Pediatric pharmacy ensures safe and effective drug use and optimal medication therapy outcomes in children up to 18 years of age. Currently, there are more than 1,450 board-certified pediatric pharmacy specialists, known as BPS. If you're interested in this expanding field of pharmacy, this podcast is for you. All right, everyone, let's give it up for our host.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. This is um, Pediatrics in the Review via the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I am super excited about our guest today, Claudia Fox, um, who is an expert in childhood obesity, which I feel like, if anything, now post-COVID has been an exponential problem as compared to the later and practicing in the hospitals, um, seeing how profoundly the obese pediatric patients were even just affected by COVID compared to the other population, it was a true true testimony that, you know, this warrants a lot more attention. Um, When I saw her and her um, whole team and subcommittee uh, publish these new guidelines on pediatric obesity, I was super excited to have us on. Um, Dr. Fox, first things first, can you just give us a little bit about where you're practicing and what your day-to-day looks like?
1: Uh, For sure. So um, thanks so much, Jenna, for having me join you today. I'm really excited to speak with you and uh, your guests. Uh, I am a pediatric obesity medicine specialist and uh, my clinical work is here at the University of Minnesota in our uh, pediatric weight management clinic. So we are a multidisciplinary program that treats uh, children and adolescents who present to us with usually fairly complicated, severe obesity.
0: Thank you so much. And like I said, I mean, I feel like they're, what we'll talk about, like we have to get away from the stigma and view it just like similar, like to mental health, just view it as a disease state that needs to be treated just like, just like everything else. It's not the blame game of, oh, you know, it's their parents' fault or yada, yada, yada just like mental health which is near and dear to my heart i think it's a disease state and just like anything else it has to be managed um and we have to come from a very non-judgmental place um when talking to patients about this
1: yeah you know i i think if nothing else if that could be like the nugget that you all take from this podcast that would be it that obesity is indeed a disease it's not the kids fault it's not the parents fault Um, this is a disorder of energy regulation at its core um, so it's biologically based certainly influenced by our environment um, but you know, we all live in this environment and yet not everybody has obesity. Um, So it is those who have the disorder of energy regulation who go on to develop obesity. And so it's, it's not under anybody's control. We don't have volitional control over our body weight any more than we have volitional control over our body temperature or, you know, breathing or any other physiological process that's supposed to be highly regulated that's out of our control it happens automatically without us thinking about it Um, so you know when parents um, present and are concerned that oh you know maybe they're not feeding their children right or their children aren't getting enough exercise well that might be really a symptom of obesity rather than the cause of obesity and so recognizing stepping back that okay yes obesity has really specific pathophysiology and that's what we're targeting when we when we're talking about treatment
0: that's awesome thank you so much and yeah i think it, it's a whole culture shift that i think we're doing we're, we're getting better at i'm <laughs> a little Holy bit tiny tiny bit tiny bit I, i'm a big advocate for mental health with my own anxiety postpartum OCD. I mean, it's scary, and so a lot of things aren't, you know, in your control in the way that you know you can work your best at it every day. But what it comes down to is, it, it is any like anything else, just a disease state, and so you have to manage it. Um, so first things first, just to to step back for one second. Obviously, you guys um, established these amazing guidelines, and to be honest, like this is what I could find the first robust data expert panel um, that I've I've ever seen is that true?
1: Yes so this is um you're talking be talking about the American Academy of Pediatrics clinical practice guidelines around the assessment and management of obesity. Um, I was not part of the writing committee to be clear okay um, I am an executive committee member of the section on obesity um, for the AAP but I was not a participant in in the writing. Um, So just to put that out there, but yes, you are right. This is the first guidelines that are, um, that were based on evidence. So the, the recommendations that are published in these guidelines are based on clinical trial data, um, hardcore facts um, in contrast to previous um, recommendations that were supported by the AAP, um, which were were simply that they were expert recommendations based on what knowledge we had at that time, which and that was back in 2007, which at that time we didn't have all the robust data that we do now. Um, so, so that that's that's a that's an important distinction. That yes, these are. Clinical practice guidelines based on current research evidence.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much. And just for those, I'm I'm sure most people listening, um, but we do we do get some parents listening as as well. So I want to just make sure it's comprehensive. You know, how do you define overweight and versus obesity? Sure,
1: sure. So, um, it so obesity is defined by its manifestation of excess body fat mass. So that's what we're talking about. When we talk about obesity, it's a state of having excess body fat mass. Um, and, And so how do we then measure, what's the best way to measure body fat mass on a person? That's really hard to do um, in the clinic. The best way to do it is to put somebody on a DEXA scanner, for example, where you can actually look at their body composition, but that's not practical. So we approximate a person's body fat mass using the BMI, body mass index. Um, And by uh, definition, obesity is having a BMI greater than the 95th percentile for age and sex for a kid. Um, overweight is having a BMI between the 85th and 95th percentile for age and sex. Um, there's a lot of concern out there, I think, amongst the um lay public in particular about the um, utility of BMI and um, uh, how robust is it in terms of diagnosing a person with obesity, it is not perfect for sure. we there is a possibility of either over diagnosing or underdiagnosing a kid um, with obesity. So it is not perfect. So for that reason, it's important that if you are a parent of a child who carries extra weight um, that you talk with your pediatrician about, about the finding on their growth chart. What, you know, does it seem like the BMI really is indeed identifying high body fat mass? For the most part, the majority of the times it is. It is a fairly, uh, it is an accurate reflection. It's very rarely would we say, "Mm, that person has a high BMI, but it's not related to excess adiposity.
0: Okay. Very, very good. Thank you so much. And then I know we alluded to this in, in the beginning, but, you know, what is the prevalent, prevalence, excuse me, of obesity in the U.S. and how has it been affected by COVID?
1: Yeah. So back in the 1960s, only about 5% of kids in the U.S. had obesity. Today, it's nearly 20%. Wow. Um, yeah. So um, prevalence rates have increased dramatically, and then COVID came and things got even worse. So during COVID, um, there was a doubling, doubling.
0: Wow, I the it. rate
1: of BMI increase um, just over those the, the, those few years. Um, and you know we we all we all lived through it and are not surprised, right? We were all sort of stuck inside, immobile eating a lot, very stressed. Uh, Um,
0: It, it was sad too, just to see, like, I felt like for me, what really hit home and what was sad was I would see a lot of these obese patients come in, um, and they got COVID and they were as young as like 10 and 12 and, their body, in addition to COVID, it activated a a type or a diabetes, whether that's type one or type two. And I saw some pass away and it really messed me up. It was just like, and so I know this isn't where the direction we're going, but when I had an opportunity to enroll my kids in the COVID vaccine trial, I did it right away. And my husband was like, why? And I'm like, because no, not all the kids are getting sick, but seeing how these Obese kids get, you know, for some reason, their body activates the diabetes because of the the virus. And then I've seen how fatal, I mean, a couple of them died and it really, it just hit home and it was really sad to see.
1: Um, You're right. So children with obesity do fare worse, um, did fare worse when infected with COVID. Um, So that, that for sure, obesity is a risk factor for worse worse outcomes from COVID. And, um, we also saw sort of to your point about, um, sort of a blip up in rates of diabetes during, um, during the pandemic as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was very anecdotal, but I'm like, I think this must be happening around. around. It was. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then I know we, we touched on the stigma, but, but really who is, at most risk uh, of obesity? Um, You know, we talk about the social determinants of health, so I'll I'll let you take it away, but it was very interesting reading the guide. Well,
1: so, you know, it's important to recognize that the greatest determinant of a person's shape or size or their BMI is their genetics. Yes. 40 to 70% of the variability in BMI is related to genetics. So, you know... Again, to harken back to this is sort of baked into your DNA. You can't help it if you have it. You can't help it if you're slender. You can't help it if you were born with brown eyes or blue eyes. And this is part of the package that you've inherited from your parents. Um, so we, we that is that is the most potent predictor of developing obesity for sure there are a lot of other factors um, we think about sort of the biological factors there are psychological factors and then social factors so among the biological factors for sure genetics polygenics um, there are uh, very rarely um, monogenic forms of obesity where there are single gene mutations along the melanocortin pathway which is the um pathway by which our bodies are supposed to regulate hunger and fullness, hunger and satiety. Um, So monogenic obesity is something that we see particularly in in specialty care clinics where um, these kids typically present with early onset severe obesity with hyperphagia. Um, Other biological contributors might include stress. It might include obesogenic medications. It might include endocrinopathies, though even that endocrinopathies are exceedingly rare, accounting for less than 1% of obesity. So even though many patients might think, oh, my kid must have Cushing's because they have a buffalo hump or they must have hypothyroidism, it's very uncommon cause of obesity in children and adolescents. Um, so those are biological factors. Okay. There are psychological factors that predict um, or contribute to obesity, to mental illness, stress, anxiety, depression, um, binge eating disorder. Where we see a lot of ADHD is a common comorbidity with um, with obesity, and then all of the social factors that you are all uh, well aware of: food insecurity. Um, stress, you know, school, food, lunch, full food, you
0: know, or lack thereof. So um, in the summertime, you always think of the kids that don't have that, that, you know, you take for granted a lot of times. Um,
1: So really, when
0: we think about those
1: that are at highest risk for obesity are those who have a familial predisposition, who then may additionally have some of these other exposures, whether it's some mental illness, psychosocial stressors. Those are the kids who are at greatest risk.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, Thank you so much. And for now, this was interesting to me, um, just reading how extensive, which makes sense. You know, the the more you, you touch base, the more, Therapy that you're doing with the families, for lack of a better word, that's what what it it is. Um, sure. What is you know comprehensive obesity treatment? And the first thing that comes to my mind is like you know I know this is well founded in the adult population, but how can we we use remote patient monitoring to to really help touch touch point these patients more? Um, again, I would love for your opinion of all the above.
1: Yeah, so. Well, comprehensive obesity treatment involves treating the child as a whole person, not just treating the number on their scale. Um, so like I just indicated, obesity has lots of contributors to it, whether it is depression or poor sleep or some psychosocial distress. The comprehensive Obesity treatment involves addressing all those factors that may influence a child's overall well being, which in turn automatically influences their weight status. Um, So it that is best um, exemplified by a multidisciplinary approach, if you can have that. So um, a pediatrician who is capable of addressing and uh, identifying mental illness, of identifying weight related comorbidities that may be contributing to um, excess adiposity, like, um, you know, diabetes or pre-diabetes. Um, a pediatrician or physician um, or healthcare pr- practitioner, you know, somebody who's who's competent um, and capable of identifying all of the weight-related comorbidities. And then maybe having somebody, whether it's a social worker, if you don't have the ability to do it, to help support some of those social determinants of health that may be impeding um, health Uh, in a general sense. Um, So that, and it's um, comprehensive obesity treatment is usually chronic in nature. That is, we don't usually think of it as, oh, you know, you attend these five sessions and then your obesity is cured. No, rather it is chronic, it involves chronic care. So with frequent touch points, um, checking in with the family and the patient, around how they're doing um what's going well what's not going well um and and iterative like how do you modify the treatment over time to meet the needs of the family
0: yeah and i'm sure like you know just from toddler to then you know childhood to then i think of like adolescence like how wildly different even like my personality was <laughs> um for sure, for sure, you know, and I have
1: kids now that are in their early twenties that I've been seeing since they were 13, 14. And you know, so it's a it's a obesity is a chronic disease. It you you don't grow out of it, you don't cure it, you manage it like any other chronic disease. Like yes. diabetes, like asthma, um, just like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really awesome uh, takeaway. So, I mean, we alluded to it, but what other uh, additional comorbidities come with obesity? And really, that's obviously a huge reason why we want to manage it as well, is because yeah. we want to make sure all the various comorbidities that can come with it are minimized. Absolutely. Absolutely. So obesity affects pretty much every single
1: organ system. So. There's an opportunity, if you will, for lots of problems to arise. The ones that are most common um, include non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, pre-diabetes, um, though you know the rates of type two diabetes are increasing dramatically. Um, um as well but we see still prediabetes is more common hypertension or dyslipidemia those are both very common Um, mental illness is also exceedingly common depression anxiety um pcos is also some one that is um seen relatively often so Many, many organ systems can be involved, um, including you know musculoskeletal system, um, neurologic system, it is such as with um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Um, so really it, it appropriate treatment would involve assessing for all all of the potential complications. Yeah. And then addressing them.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I didn't even know that the intracranial pressure, it's even down to that. That was really interesting mm-hmm. the the guidelines. I was I was not aware of that. Yeah. In fact, our youngest patient who had
1: bariatric surgery. Um, was a twelve-year-old boy who had severe intracranial hypertension and was at risk of losing his sight. Um, oh. so that's why he had surgery, and it was for sure um, sight-saving for him.
0: Wow! Mm-hmm. Wow! Um, so this is also interesting to me, and I would love—I mean, as a parent, I was trying to trying to gauge what is my feeding style because that was really interesting too, to think of. It's not something that you as a parent really stop and pull back and, and evaluate. It's kind of like, just like you're saying, like genetic, like how your parents fed you was kind of like how you feed your kids and you don't even think about it. Like I'm guilty of like once a week we do, you know, McDonald's. And so, you know, that was what we did as a kid. And I don't even think about it. And, you know, I have a very, like, I just put food in front of my kids. If they eat it, great. If not, okay. I'm going to offer you the same thing a couple hours later when you're, when you're hungry and you don't even think about, is that the right thing to do? Or is that the wrong thing to do? Um, so, yeah, I would just love for you to elaborate on that too, because again, I not something that I even, have reflected on in my six years of parenting.
1: Right. So there there is an association between certain feeding styles and childhood obesity. But remember it's an association, not a causation, right? So kind of to your point, like is this nature or nurture? Is it is is the feeding style related to what you as a mom have in, inherited from from your own parents um, as as well as any sort of formative experiences that you've got from your own childhood so just I think we need to just be cautious about the you know, the causality of different parenting styles and childhood obesity. Having said that, um, there is an association between having an authoritarian um, uh, parenting style and having children who carry extra weight. So authoritarian um, is a a parenting style that is characterized as being very Firm, inflexible, uh, my way or the highway kind of uh a, an approach. Um, so like you have to have this, you can only have this, and you have to eat all of this um before you can leave the table. Um, in contrast, authoritative um is one that is supports um limits. Um, But those limits might be arrived at uh, mutually between the parent and the child. Like, okay, um, you can have some dessert today um but it's going to be either um you know this healthy dessert or that healthy dessert um so there is some there are limits but they are more it's a more collaborative approach mm-hmm. and so you know for whatever that's worth that that sort of more collaborative warm approach um discussing why there are such limits if you will um tends to pretend better outcomes
0: got it yeah because i i'm pretty not. i wouldn't say lenient because i definitely have rules but it was just interesting to watch because like i i don't even realize that i do it but i do always give them options because i want them to feel empowered at all exactly. times exactly so that is a key feature of authoritative parenting style. I mean, like, you know, you're giving them two good choices, but they have no idea. They're like, hey, sure. I'm okay. <laughs> um, broccoli or string beans? String beans. Okay, great. Let's do that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I found that because I'm very inflexible, a perfectionist, I have OCD. And so that was like my biggest lesson in parenting was that like, I I cannot be completely inflexible um, because it trickles into so many other things um that are not good for my child but it's really it's a hard it's a hard self-reflection um so now we're getting to like the things that i'm really excited about because you know I'm i'm a pharmacist so i this is this is very new this this whole um approach and kind of um okay and these innovative meds to treat Again, like we're saying, it's a regular, it's a disease state like any other. So I'm really excited to see that, you know, medication use, like with mental illness, hypertension, diabetes, it's becoming more acceptable. And so can you speak to, you know, what are the medication options and when in your practice, do you find it appropriate to, you know, go to the medication versus lifestyle modifications? Mm Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So, um, it has been such a, um, I I would, I will just say that right now in these last, you know, six to 12 months, the landscape of anti-obesity, um, pharmacotherapy has just been transforming right before our eyes, even as recently as this week with, um, Publications around these triagonists leading to twenty five percent weight loss. I mean, so really, um, really amazing outcomes. So we are at the doorsteps of, of of a new frontier in obesity management, and that door is is certainly wide open for adults. And it is just now, you know, slowly peaking open for the pediatric population. Um, and I would argue, though, that we really need to be starting to um, get more aggressive and um, intensive about treatment of pediatric obesity. Um, and I'm not talking about. The, you know, the, the nine-year-old who might be weighing 70 pounds. I'm talking about the nine-year-old who might be weighing 180 pounds. Like, you know, these are really severely effective kids who definitely need biological, um, treatment to mm-hmm. address their biological disease. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, Right now um, there are six FDA approved anti-obesity medications for the treatment of children and adolescents. Um so we have fentramine, which is FDA approved for I call them kids, but older than 16 for four, for, for short-term use. Um somat- mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. not to interrupt, that's like the old school fenfen that everyone used to No,
1: hear. no, it so... Fenfen was a combination of fentermine and fenfluoramine. Okay, thank fen-fluoramine you. Fenfluramine is associated with heart disease, valvular heart disease, um, um pulmonary hypertension. You can no longer get fenfen because of the fenfluoramine, but fentermine, fentermine, monotherapy, um, is, okay. is the most widely prescribed anti obesity medication in the country. Got it. Uh, very safe. Widely used, quite effective. Okay, because that's approved be... for kids older than sixteen.
0: Awesome, because I had to look that up because I was not sure at first. I'm like, oh my, yeah. God, what is this? No, medicine? yeah. Then back in when I mean, yes. when she was like an, a teenager or something. I'm like, are are you not supposed to use that? So that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I had so, to educate myself. So yes, thanks. So it. I'm glad you brought that
1: up. So fentermine, fentermine and topiramate combination therapy, also known as Qsemia, loraglutide, 3 milligrams, which is called sexenda, Um, semaglutide, uh, 2.4 milligrams, which is also called wolgovi, or listat. Um, and then the sixth one is setmelanotide. So this is a unique medication. I put it in its own little separate category because it treats only um, certain forms of monogenic obesity and has also been uh, approved for BBS, Bartit Vital Syndrome. Okay. Um, So that, that really only covers a very, very small uh, population, but the other five ones are, um, Appropriate for kids um, with a BMI greater than the 95th percentile. Okay. So class one obesity, if you will, doesn't matter if you have a weight-related comorbidity or not. For the clinician, how do you decide when to start an AOM or not? Um, it's really a conversation between you and the family. Um, it depends on the severity of the obesity. Depends on are there any weight-related comorbidities? What's the family's experience with uh, medications in the past? um, And, and, you know, educate them. Know that for particularly adolescents with severe obesity, lifestyle therapy is just not going to cut it. Um, It's a very, very small minority of kids, less than 10% for sure, who will achieve clinically significant BMI reduction with lifestyle therapy alone. So virtually every adolescent with severe obesity for sure needs pharmacotherapy. And I would offer it, we do offer it upon diagnosis, like right when we see the kid. And in fact, that is one of the um, key points of the clinical practice guidelines that we as clinicians should no longer be Um, waiting to see how a kid does. We should be offering the full spectrum of anti-obesity therapies upon diagnosis of obesity. So we shouldn't be waiting around, trying lifestyle therapy year after year after year, watching BMI increase, and then to suddenly decide, oh yeah, maybe we should use pharmacotherapy or refer to bariatric surgery. No, at diagnosis, we should be intervening.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I compare it to like ADHD, whereas like parents think they're doing their kids a, a you know disservice starting them on meds. And I'm like, no, we have literature to say your child is literally going to thrive via confidence um, in life. Later in life, they're going to have less chance of having substance abuse. So I think, you know, really when I work with parents, it's like kind of rewiring ourselves that, you know okay, yes, you know, less is, less is more. I'm all about taking off meds that aren't working, but in those cases where we have a diagnosis and the child's struggling, you know, I'm all about, you know, treating, treating that. And so I think it's really well needed culture shift. Now Mm -hmm. as a pharmacist going through all this, this is all new to us too. So, you know, you, you went through the, the different um medications and obviously they're all different dosage forms sure too so how do you how do you select one versus the other when you're working with with the parent uh you know as a pharmacist i would love your expertise on that
1: right so in an ideal world we would be basing it on patient symptomatology um Access to, you know, um, access to medicine, however, becomes the driving factor. Is it covered by their insurance? Uh, Is it even available for that matter? So with right now with Wagovi, there's a shortage of the started starting doses. So we haven't been able to start it for the last two or three weeks. Um, And that's um, that's a national national shortage. Um, So. So um, the reality is, is that is it covered by the patient's insurance becomes the number one deciding factor. Um, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are very expensive, $1,000 a month, $1,300 a month, depending on what you're getting. Um, and so that's just, you know, cost prohibitive to pay out of pocket. Um we are our center is very active in terms of um uh lobbying our legislator to improve coverage of um, anti obesity medications on on um, um, Medicaid farm um, pharmacies um so we've been able to get um, MA from our own from Minnesota to cover AOM now, which is a huge, huge, um, uh, uh, a, a huge win. There are only like eight states across the country.
0: I'm going to tell you about Minnesota. I'm from New Jersey, and my company has we're all getting licensed in minnesota because they actually allow pharmacists to practice i mean i can't i just applaud minnesota in so many ways how innovative they are and coming from a state that's so restrictive in so many ways it's like almost like we're living in a different country and it's like i'm like what is happening so you know i started my business here in new jersey and when i saw like well, we're recognized as providers. We're allowed to help physicians out there. We don't need to even do it through a collaborative practice. But the reason I'm saying this is just because I, I love Minnesota. <laughs> you guys are. I do too. I amazing. do too. <laughs> so that was, that's my sidebar. Just yeah, okay. All we right. all live like the people in Minnesota. Right. Well, happy. you know,
1: we had a sympathetic congressperson um, and, it, and it only took that one congressperson to really help push our story and, um, and push our, push our, um, agenda and it, and it worked. Um, it's not perfect okay. for sure. Um, there are still some crazy limitations, but it is, it is, um, pretty decent. I, I, I must say, um, awesome. so in case, like, how do you choose whatever is available on the patient's formulary, um, do they have any contraindications? So for example, if a kid has um, really severe hypertension, I'm probably going to stay away from Phentermine or Phentermin though sometimes we do still use it, making sure that their blood pressure is first controlled. Um, if they have prediabetes or diabetes, I might choose a GLP-1
0: RA. Um, so uh, I just go to the release of, this is what I was, Jardian's, Mm-hmm. Did you see that they they the, for the approval for children ten years and older now?
1: Oh, for type two diabetes. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. That's what I was looking. Yeah. At. I knew that was like a new thing on the the market. So I wanted. Yeah. To yes. That. So an SGLT two inhibitor.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then obviously, you know, I think about a lot of people when you when you're talking about sub Q injections get really you know, panicked with that. Do you guys offer, and I don't know, like we always did those encephalons in the hospital. I don't even know if they're reasonable outpatient, but I imagine it's a huge source of anxiety for some people. It's
1: a huge source of anxiety until you show the patients how small the needles are. I mean, these are, they're four millimeter needles, mm-hmm. They're like the size of your eyelash. So critical for helping getting your patient on board is to show them the pens show oh, wow. them the needles, have them manipulate them do a practice um, injection um, in the clinic before they leave it is a very very seldom patient who who doesn't want to take the medication because of fear of needles I will say awesome. um, and that is uh, that's very surprising I was like there's nobody gonna want to do injections, but I no, would, m- I am so wrong on that. That is not at all the barrier at all. More often the barrier is GI side effects.
0: Okay. So. And the, the nausea and and nausea. Vomiting, do yep. people And um, some yeah.
1: diarrhea too. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: All right. Um, yeah, no, that's great too. And I always I mean, when I when I think of Of course, you're saying access and like that's unfortunately like with ADHD, one of the disease states I treat all the time. It's like, well, what's covered? So let's start there, which is not the right thing. But unfortunately, the reality. So you think what's there. And then, of course, you know, clinical pearls wise, what would be a reason why I I don't use this medication? Um, like reading you know, just topiramate might has that cognitive impairment that sometimes is is super real to people, and so I can imagine that that would be one um but one question, and i I didn't put this um on there, but with you know, I take care of a lot of children who need antipsychotics, right? like it, it is it is not debatable, like these patients cannot function if they don't have. Um there are atypical antipsychotics on board, which for those listening, if you aren't aware, cause a slew of metabolic syndromes, which include uh, obesity, increase in prolactin, which goneastia, uh lipid, you know, uh their lipid profiles increase. And so, you know. With these patients that need to stay on these these antipsychotics, I would love, selfishly, you know, how do you manage that? Do you do you do that in partnership with um, a medication, uh, an anti abuse medication? And do you have one that you like that works better? I mean, I haven't done a drug-drug interaction check, but that's always you know, something with the antipsychotics. So again, I would love your expertise on that. Sure. That
1: is, um, so we see a fair number of kids who do have weight gain from atypical antipsychotic use. And there is pretty good literature to support the use of metformin um, for mitigating weight gain associated with atypical antipsychotics, for sure in the pediatric population and the adult. Um, There also in the adult population, there is literature to support topiramate um, can also be helpful for mitigating weight gain um, associated with atypical antipsychotics. So I Generally, we'll use one or both of those, okay. um, and then I—I'm I, not aware of any research that has looked at the the GLP-1 receptor agonists um, as as um, being helpful. But I don't see a reason why they would not be helpful, like for any other type of obesity. Okay. Um, so, um, if that was available to you. I would, that's the one that I would probably even start with.
0: Okay. Yeah. And reading, it looks like, you know, we have the literature for metformin, but without the atypical antipsychotic, metformin didn't look like it was, had robust outcomes, Mm -hmm. you know, just as an anti bc med. In no, I, no. For so
1: metformin alone results in about a three percent BMI reduction, right. whereas Qsimia or ventramito is nine yeah. percent. Um, Wagovi or you know uh, semaglutide is more like sixteen, almost seventeen percent BMI reduction. So metformin monotherapy is really pales in comparison to some of the newer newer generation anti-obesity medications.
0: And and the only thing that you're seeing as far as, you know, like you're saying, the reason why you wouldn't do it is really if the GI side effects are so intolerable. Um, but I would imagine like a lot of other meds, if you can kind of get them to work through that initial period yeah. um, or, you know, I don't know, like, I mean, again, I'm not as um, well-versed in, in the, um, the peptide, uh, medications, but is it like, could you do maybe every other day and then build up? Like, you know, I think about all the other meds where I'm like, well, let's just have that dose for a couple weeks, get that nausea GI symptoms all at bay, and then increase it again. And that should negate you feeling so nauseous, um, or vomiting or diarrhea. Can you do that with them? So um, they all have uh,
1: recommended titration schedules so as to minimize GI side effects already. Okay, cool. So for example, um, Loraglitide or Saxenda is a daily injection. That's um, the dose is increased um, once a week. Okay. Um, um and and then. W- well, govie's is increased every four weeks okay um and so you can always just stay at a given dose and not increase for you know to allow for the patient to get used to it before increasing um, the dose and some some practitioners do that automatically I tend to just go according to the package insert um, okay. and do the recommended um, titration schedule
0: okay. Thank you. Cause yeah, this is, I mean, this is all so new to me. I was really excited to have you on because selfishly, yeah. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to learn so much. Yeah.
1: Um, and we also use a lot of anti nausea medication too to help with the okay. for symptom symptom relief, especially in the beginning. Okay. All right. Kids so, really struggling.
0: Mm-hmm. Just Zofran or do you guys have? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. I didn't know if there was another agent. Um, and then the last question is, um, uh, just very briefly, because obviously a lot of this, I wanted to focus more on meds, but you know, when does bariatric surgery come into play? Um, and of course, in adults alone, they have huge success. So um, yeah. I just wanted to, to just touch touch on that as well.
1: Yeah. So for um, adolescents, the outcomes of bariatric surgery rival that of adults. So not As good as in adults. So um, there's that. In terms of indications, it depends on the BMI and the presence of comorbidities. So for um, children and adolescents, it's a BMI in the class two obesity range. So that is a BMI between 35 and 40 or greater than 1.2 times the 95th percentile. Okay. So 1.4 times the 95th percentile. And and that if you have that lower um degree of obesity, you have to have a weight-related comorbidity with it. Okay. Um or BMI greater than 40 or greater than 1.4 times the 95th percentile without necessarily having a weight-related comorbidity.
0: Okay, cool. Um yeah. and I guess like as so I know we kind of alluded to this, but um, you know, as as a healthcare provider to wrap up, what's your One piece of advice. I might have stolen it in the beginning, but um, just your one nugget for us uh, as um, we... Yeah,
1: you know, I would say obesity is a chronic, multifactorial, biologically-based disease. It needs to be treated as such. And I think it is incredibly important to educate our patients, their families, and healthcare practitioners about that so that we can reduce stigma and blame and shame and get people the treatment they need.
0: That's that's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I know that this is tied to a lot of mental health and so that's like near and dear to my heart. And so I think it's a really great, much needed approach. And Thank you to you and all your, your colleagues who, who published I know you didn't write them, but uh, your expertise for medications was well, well appreciated. Um, I learned a ton from you again, this is new landscape for us all. Um, so, so thank you so much, uh, Dr. Fox for being on and um, I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for today's episode.
1: Thanks for listening and remember to subscribe on Apple podcast and leave us a review.